Hi, uh, I'm Ben Tinley. I'm a first year student studying uh, physics and maths. Today we'll be reading Romans 9, chapter 1 to uh, Romans chapter 9, verse 1 to 29. You can follow along in your handouts. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is the traced human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was stated. At the appointed time I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet, before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, Then why does God still blame us? But who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes? and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah.
Well, if you spend a bit of time online, uh, then you've probably already come across a thing called Godwin's Law, uh, which states that as an online discussion grows longer, the probability of a comparison involving Nazis or Hitler approaches one. Uh, And you've probably experienced that in chats online and uh, maybe even chats in real life. Well, I'd like to propose a similar law. Uh, I'm not sure what to call it. But uh, this law would state that as a discussion among Christians grows longer, the probability of a debate involving predestination approaches one. (laughs) Now, in case you have somehow managed to avoid any discussion of predestination, uh, let me just explain what it is. Uh, Predestination, the way I'm talking about it today, uh, is the idea that people ultimately choose to put their faith in Jesus only because God has already chosen them. Now, some people see that as enormously reassuring, that our salvation depends not on me in all my weakness and frailty, but on God and his faithfulness. But to other people, it feels like a a cold, hard sort of doctrine where an angry God arbitrarily saves some and condemns others who never stood a chance. So what does the Bible actually say about predestination? Uh, Well, today we reach... Chapter 9 of Romans, in our series on Paul's letter to the Romans. And chapter 9 of Romans is the chapter in the Bible where predestination is front and centre. So we're going to have a look today at what God actually has to say about predestination. But first, we need to do some background. Because in the first eight chapters of Romans, Paul has spelled out the predicament that we are in. That ever since Adam rebelled against God, all people, Jew and Gentile alike, have continued in that rebellion, suppressing the truth about God, failing to live in line with what they know about him uh, through creation and their conscience if they're Gentiles, uh, through scripture and the law of Moses if they're Jews. But either way, all of us, Jew and Gentile alike, know enough about God to be guilty of rejecting him. And God is rightly angry at our rejection. But the good news of the gospel is that rather than destroy us as we deserve, God in his love poured out his, uh, poured out his anger on his son Jesus, who took our punishment in our place so that we could be forgiven and made right with God. We can't actually do anything to earn that. All we can do is trust Jesus and his death for us. And the result is that we're declared right with God. We have peace with him. We're adopted as his children. And our destiny is future glory with Christ in the new creation. And so Romans chapter 8 ends with arguably the greatest verses in the Bible. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
uh, as our Prime Minister Scott Morrison might say, how good is salvation? That's really the note that Paul is ending on. How good is the love of God? But there's just one problem. What about Israel? Now, you may not think about Israel very much, the people of Israel, but actually you should. Because, as Paul points out in verses 4 and 5, Israel are a lot like us. They're blessed by God. They're adopted out of all the nations to be God's son. They experience his divine glory on Mount Sinai and in the temple. They're partakers of God's covenant. They're recipients of the law, the very words of God. The temple worship with its high priest offering sacrifices for forgiveness. The promises that I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. I'll never break my covenant with you, God says to them. Theirs are the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, chosen and blessed by God as the forefathers of Israel. They're even the biological family of Jesus, he points out, the king of the universe. Israel is enormously blessed by God. And yet, as Paul is painfully aware, many of them are cut off from God because they've rejected their own Messiah, Jesus. Paul sees that and it just kills him. Uh, You can see it there in verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Paul's clearly torn up by the fact that Israel have turned their back on Jesus. Not all Israel, but much of Israel. But Israel's rejection of Jesus is not just a problem for them or a problem for Paul. It's actually a problem for us. Because after all, if we've put our faith in Jesus, we're actually now part of Israel. We're adopted into the people of God. We're partakers in the new covenant, receiving the very words of God, coming to Jesus, the better temple, the better sacrifice, the better priest, the source of true forgiveness. And so if Israel, with all God's blessings and promises has been separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus, well, then doesn't that throw the whole glorious conclusion of Romans chapter 8 into question? If God has failed with Israel, what's to stop him failing with us? I mean, if Israel was God's plan A to save the world from sin, and that failed, well, then what's to stop him failing with plan B, with Jesus and us? Do you see the problem? Well, look at what Paul says in verse 6. It's not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. That might sound a little weird, but his point is that actually not all Israel, that is not all the biological descendants of Abraham, are Israel in the sense of the people of God. In fact, as Paul goes on to point out, biological descent has never guaranteed salvation. So take Abraham, for example, the grandfather of Israel. God promised that he would make Abraham a great nation. So does that mean that all Abraham's biological children are the children of God? 
Well, says Paul, let's have a look. So, how many sons did Abraham have? He asks. Well, there's two. He has Ishmael through his maidservant Hagar, and he has Isaac through his wife Sarah. Now, did God count the descendants of both Ishmael and Isaac as his people? Well, no, actually. As Paul says in verse 7, quoting God, speaking to Abraham in Genesis 21, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. It wasn't biology that made Isaac the child of God. Otherwise, Ishmael automatically would have been as well. But he wasn't. What made Isaac God's child was not the fact that his father was Abraham, but the fact that God chose him. But you might say, well, hang on a minute. Maybe the reason Ishmael wasn't chosen was because the whole sort of Abraham-Hagar thing is a bit dodgy. I mean, after all, sleeping with your servant girl is not the right thing to do, really, is it? So maybe the problem, maybe it's not really about God choosing, maybe it's just that the whole arrangement was dodgy. But then you've only got to look at the next generation to see that that is not what's going on. So Abraham's son, Isaac, marries Rebekah, and they have twins. This is your classic twin study in the ancient world, if you've done that in biology. Esau is born a couple of minutes before Jacob. Same mother, same father, nothing dodgy at all, perfectly legit. So then why does Jacob, the younger brother, become the father of God's people? Why does Jacob become Israel? Instead of Esau. I mean, by all rights, Esau's the older. He should be the one who gets the blessing. Is it because Jacob is better than Esau? Is it because Esau sold his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of lentil soup? Well, no, actually, says Paul in verse 11. And he points to Genesis again. He says, yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad... In order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. You see what Paul's saying? Jacob is counted as one of God's people and Esau isn't. Not because of any difference in their ancestry. There isn't any difference. Not because Jacob was a better person. God chooses Jacob before either of them did anything. Jacob is counted as one of God's people simply because God chose him. Paul's saying it's never been about biological descent. It's never been about human effort. That has never made you one of God's children. And that's critically important because it shows that God's word hasn't failed. We're actually not plan B. It's not like God sort of mucked it up with Israel and thought, oh no, what am I going to do now? No, God never promised that all those descended from Abraham would be the children of God. The only way anyone has ever become a child of God is if God chooses them before they're even born. Does that make sense so far? does kind of raise some questions though, doesn't it? Because if you think about what Paul's just said, 
Isn't he saying that some people will have eternal life alongside Jesus in the new creation simply because God has chosen them and that everyone else will experience eternity in hell because God hasn't chosen them? And isn't that grossly unfair? That's the obvious question, and that's the question that he raises in verse 14. Is God unjust? And his answer is no, not at all. As God says to Moses, verse 15, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now that sounds completely arbitrary, doesn't it? That it runs completely contrary to our ideas of fairness. But just stop and think about it for a moment. Is fairness really something that you want to demand from God? What would it be fair for God to do to rebels like us? Well, it'd actually be fair to execute all of us, wouldn't it? To condemn us all to hell. That would be fair. That would be what we deserve. God turning his back on those who have turned their back on him. Now, what I need from God is not fairness. I need mercy. If we get what we deserve, I'm going to hell. And so are you. I need to get what I don't deserve. I need mercy. But then God's not actually under any obligation to show mercy to anyone, is he? That's just not what mercy is. None of us deserve it. So God is free, as he says in verse 18, to have mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and to harden whom he wants to harden. Now, does that still sound unfair? It might do. But I think only if we fundamentally misunderstand what God is doing. So I think we tend to assume that God has sort of this big pile of neutral humans and then he just sort of randomly sends them to hell or to eternal life, as if he's just sort of parceling them out. Like, here we go, we've got our neutral pile of people. You go to hell, you go to hell, you go to hell. You get eternal life, you get eternal life, you get eternal life. But that is absolutely not what is happening. And notice the language that Paul uses, the language of mercy and hardening. See, both terms actually assume that we are not neutral. On the one hand, mercy assumes that we deserve God's punishment. And hardening is not forcing neutral people to become sinners. Hardening is not about moving people anywhere. Hardening is about reinforcing people in the position they're already in. So we aren't some big neutral group of humans that God is just randomly parceling out to heaven and hell. No, ever since Adam rebelled against God, we've all been destined for hell because we're all biased against God. We all sin as a result of Adam. Now, we find that kind of offensive because we're all radical individualists. Like, why should I be affected by what my great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather did? But then if you stop and think about it, almost everything about who you are is determined by your ancestors. We just forget it because we're such individualists, but individualism is foolish. 
I was born in Australia, not because I wanted to be born here. I was born here because my ancestors moved here. Or actually, to be honest, my ancestors were forced to move here after uh, doing some dodgy stuff in England. <laughs> but uh, because of their sin, <laughs> I was born in Australia. Not by my own choice, but I am by very nature Australian. I didn't choose to be born here, but then again, I do kind of quite like it here. <laughs> I've had opportunities to leave, but I don't want to. And it's the same with us and sin. Yeah, we're born slaves to sin because of the decision of our forefather Adam, his rebellion against God. But actually, left to ourselves, none of us really want to leave. <laughs> we quite enjoy it. Running life our own way, suppressing the truth about God, doing our own thing. It's not as if anyone's got a gun to our head saying, you've got to do this or else. You've got to rebel against God or, or else. No. As Paul says in Romans chapter 3, there's no one righteous, not even one. So if God chooses to save some of us from the fate that we deserve, snatching us from death to life, 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 then that's a reason to fall on our faces and praise God for his mercy. And on the flip side, if God chooses to harden some, like he did with Pharaoh in Egypt, well, he's not actually condemning us for anything that we didn't choose ourselves. God never causes innocent people to go to hell. He only ever condemns people for what they've done. So he either has mercy on rebels... Or he reinforces them in the rebellion they've already chosen to continue in. That's not unfair. I think our problem comes because we think we're actually not that bad. Now, most of us are, you know, sure, look, okay, I'm, I'm basically neutral. I'm not Hitler, on the one hand, and I'm not Mother Teresa. Um, but, you know, I'm basically a decent person. But we haven't understood the grip that sin has on every human being. We haven't understood the blackness of our own hearts. Uh, And we haven't understood the depths of God's mercy that he would save anyone at all. But wait a minute, you might say. If salvation comes down to God's choice, then why does God still blame me if he doesn't choose me? For who's able to resist his will? That's the question that Paul raises. And notice how he responds. He doesn't try and walk back what he's just said. He doesn't say, oh, look, yeah, fair point. Maybe I've overstated things a little bit. Uh, Salvation's not entirely up to God. And, you know, if if you manage to make some sort of movement towards God, then he'll respond and choose you. And he doesn't say, oh, well, actually, what God kind of does is he looks into the future before you're born and he sees that actually you're going to turn out to be a really nice person and so he chooses you and it kind of goes in this weird sort of time loop. No. He doesn't walk it back at all. On the contrary, he says in verse 20, who are you, O man, to talk back to God? In other words, who exactly do you think you are? Do you honestly think you're in a position to judge God? We're not God's equals. Uh, He's the creator. We're the creatures. 
we're not a couple of potters sitting around discussing how things are going. No, we're the pots. He's the potter. And to stand there like a clay pot with delusions of grandeur, arguing with the potter about how you've turned out, well, actually, the potter's got his right to do whatever he wants with you. He can make us however he likes. Besides which, there is kind of the supreme irony of complaining that I can't resist God's will all the time as I'm resisting God's will. We're not a neutral pile of humans whom God randomly doles out into hell and eternal life. We're actually all destined for destruction as, ancestors, as uh, descendants of Adam, as sinners. And if God chooses to do what he did with Pharaoh, showing his wrath and making his power known by condemning some of us as rebels, the objects of his wrath, who he's been putting up with for such a long time, well, he'd be entirely right to do it. He's not giving anyone any worse than what they deserve. And if perhaps he chooses to do that, to make the riches of his glory known to other rebels who he's had mercy on, whom he's prepared in advance for glory, predestined for glory, then that's his right too. And no one is getting ripped off. No one is getting worse than what they deserve. At worst, some people are getting what they deserve while others are getting lavished with incredible grace and mercy. Paul says, this is not a new thing. Now, sometimes people talk as though predestination is something that Paul came up with, or, uh, or John Calvin, perhaps. But it's not, as Paul's just shown. God's always maintained his freedom to choose who will be his people. We're so marred by sin that it couldn't be otherwise. We wouldn't choose to follow him at all. And if you need any more proof, then Paul backs it up with a bunch of Old Testament quotes in verses 25 to 29. As God says in Hosea, I'll call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who's not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. It's God's right to have mercy on who he wants to have mercy. He's not constrained to limit that to Israel. He can choose who he wants to have mercy on. And verse 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. As, uh, it is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. That is utterly wiped out in God's judgment. Because it's God's right to punish those who have rebelled against him. Being a biological descendant of Israel never guaranteed salvation. God has always chosen who his people will be. He's always chosen who he'll save, Paul's saying. And he's always been faithful to his promise. Uh, which is very good news, actually, because it means that his conclusions from the end of chapter 8 stand. That those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. That nothing in all creation 
we'll be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So how should we think about predestination? Well, look, there is a cold, hard way of approaching it. Where you don't really love God, you don't really care about others. Uh, You just say, well, so what if some people are going to hell? Uh, That's what they deserve anyway. It's God's choice, so stuff them. But I hope you've seen today that although Paul is 100% on board with predestination, the whole Bible is, this is not a cold, hard doctrine to him. On the contrary, it's one that overflows with the love of God who takes pity on his miserable creatures who deserve total and utter destruction. And he chooses to save many, many, many of us, though none of us deserve it. And for those God has chosen, the reality of predestination is a huge comfort. If you're trusting in Jesus, you can have total confidence that nothing can separate you from the love of God. If you're worried that you're too weak to make it to the glory that God's prepared for his children... Well, stop worrying. You can't stuff it up. It's not about your effort. It's about God's choice. He's chosen you. He won't change his mind. You're totally safe. Trust God. Rejoice in his love. Live for him with confidence. Nor does predestination make Paul hard-hearted towards those who are perishing. On the contrary, he says he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart over his own people who have rejected God. He's not cold and aloof, looking down on them with contempt. I mean, how could he? He was one of them. He would have been just like them if God had not chosen him. And so his heart bleeds for them. And predestination doesn't discourage him from evangelism either. Quite the opposite. It encourages him. Because, actually, if God chooses people... You never know who you might have chosen. The hardest, meanest, nastiest, most ungodly person you've ever met might have been chosen by God. And they're just waiting for you to share the gospel with them, for God to bring them to repentance and faith by his spirit. That person next to you in your lecture, or on the bus, or out on the oak lawn, or at the dialogue tonight, you might think, oh, these guys are never going to turn to Jesus. And if it was up to them, you'd be right. None of us would. But the reality is that God might have chosen them. Might have predestined them to believe the gospel, to receive eternal life. So you can just go for it. Have a crack. God might use what you're doing to bring about his purposes from before the creation of the world. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian and you're wondering about all this, have I been chosen or not? How do I know? Well, why not ask the God of mercy to have mercy on you? To bring you to repentance and faith in Jesus. Because praying a prayer like that would be a very good sign that God might well have chosen you. That he is at work in you by his spirit. Moving you towards him rather than hardening you in your rebellion. The way to know whether God has chosen you or not is not to wonder whether God has chosen you, but to put your trust in Jesus. And then you'll know. The predestination is not a cold and hopeless doctrine about a cruel and arbitrary God. Rather, it's a reality that shows us God's incredible mercy and love. 
It's a reality that should fill us with confidence and hope. Because, yeah, if salvation depends on us, we're stuffed. But because it depends on God, it makes trusting in Jesus and proclaiming the gospel actually worth doing. And it leads us to praise God instead of praising ourselves. So why don't we do that now? Heavenly Father, we do want to praise you for being the God of all mercy and comfort. Thank you that you intervened in our rebellion through your Son and your Spirit, that you chose us uh, before the foundation of the world to trust in your Lord Jesus. Father, we pray that that would give us great confidence to live our lives for you, free from fear of failure um, and full of love for you and for others. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Close to running out of time. Does anyone want to ask a quick question? Yeah. Yeah. So let's say we have agile baby that's still gone. Can they We don't know. So the short answer is God just doesn't tell us about that. So, but we can trust him to be more loving uh, than we are and more fair than we are.